0: Thank you, it's good to be here. Praise the Lord that we're all here safely and looking forward to receiving a blessing from God's Word. That's where it's at. Um, We study with our feeble minds. We use our time to dig in the Word. Ultimately, it all comes from God, and to Him goes all of the glory. All of the work that we put in is nothing in comparison to the knowledge and the wisdom that He gives us. My goal here is to just not get in his way. I have two fears in teaching, and this is a teaching situation. My first fear is that the audience or the students will not believe me. My second fear is that they will. In other words, Roy Gain is not the authority Just because I say something, you need to remember what Paul said about the Bereans. He was an inspired apostle, so much greater. I mean, he was caught up to, what, the third heaven, right? And yet he was happy when people tested his words by Scripture. That's what God wants. So take these uh, words that I have and don't take that as the authority. Go to the Word and see if it's true. And if you find that it's true, I think your experience will be like mine. As I've journaled on this topic, I do my journaling in books that I publish. (laughs) Uh, I've, you know, it's transformed me. I'm not the same person that I was. It's affected my practical daily spiritual life. It's affected the way I relate to my wife and my daughter and my students and other people. It can't help but affect you when it's that way. And so I want that to be your experience. This is not just one of 28 fundamental beliefs, the teaching of the Adventist uh, movement on the sanctuary. It's not just one of the 28 because it is a system. It's a microcosm. Ellen White called it a system of interconnected truth that holds everything else together. Many other Christian groups have found a great amount of truth. But the way it all works together is a dynamic system and pushes right through to the end. So we know what Jesus is doing right now in his sanctuary in heaven. That is something in his word that the sanctuary shows as a dynamic system with all of the parts interrelating. And when something has all of its parts having to accomplish a goal as his plan of salvation does, When it's a system, everything has to be in balance, doesn't it? And that's what's wonderful about the sanctuary teaching. It's balanced. Like your body, like your car, things have to be in balance in order for it to really uh, function. So, uh, you know, without it, we would not have any distinct, unique contribution to Christian theology, would we? Or Christian practical life. Other groups are... Um, baptists they have baptism, other groups keep the Sabbath. Some have conditional immortality of the soul. Many believe in the second coming of Christ. We have a lot of people these days who are vegan and vegetarian, including new age people and so on. Uh, so if we didn't have the sanctuary teaching which holds it all together, gives us our apocalyptic eschatological, that's end time, identity, as the people of God with something special to share, not to make us an elite, but to help people get ready to meet their Lord. If we didn't have that, we would be what a friend of mine calls Seventh-day Luther-Baptopiscitarians. Seventh-day Luther-Baptopiscitarians. It's hard to say even. Cafeteria-style, you pick a little bit here, and a little bit here, a little bit there, and you throw it all together into this nice combination that's a unique combination, but nothing unique to offer. And our evangelism stops if we have nothing unique to offer, doesn't it? Did you ever hear an ad, an ad on TV or radio that said, here is our product that we want you to invest in, and what we want you to know about this product is it's just like all the others. Is that the way people advertise? Or it's just a special combination. I mean, you can get this and this and this, but this is packaged, it's a little bit different. No. No. Now, what they want to say is, this is the one and only. This is the only one in the world. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that, then you will brag about God, the unique God, as the Gadarene demoniac did. That's what God told him to do, that is our function. That's what we're here for at the end of time. Angels could do a far more eloquent job, huh? I mean, everything the angels said could be like the Gettysburg Address and just stir people with the beauty and the magnificence. But we have a message that nobody else has, and it goes like this, I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The angels can't say that. We have a unique message, and if we brag about this great God who loves us so much, then he will use us as a channel, feeble channel, but. But the very feebleness testifies to the greatness of God. I fell. I'm, you know, I just don't understand this stuff all that well, but what I really understand is Jesus loves me, and he has a place for me, and he died for me. And when people see that we have that experience with him, we have been with Jesus personally, their hearts will be strangely warmed, and they'll see that there is hope for them too. And that's what it's all about. Now, you know why we're here, don't you? You know why we're here? I mean here, on planet Earth, in this condition. We're here because our great, 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 dot, 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 ancestors made a decision to not trust in the character of God they said to themselves, we can do this on our own. We don't have to rely on God. We can be like the Most High for ourselves. We can be little Satans. Right? And the whole story of the battle since then is for us to get it through our thick skulls. That as Daniel said to King Belshazzar, you need to honor the God in whose hand is your breath. He is our creator, sustainer of our lives. Every breath we take, every thought we have, everything is dependent upon his power. We owe him everything. We cannot do it on our own. And if he isn't immediately visible right now, we can't see him. Paul says in Romans 1 that his works, which we see all around us at this beautiful campground, testify to the fact that he's here. Now, I hear a lot of people, particularly young people these, uh, these days, saying, I tried God and, and God, God just doesn't work for me. <laughs> what a joke. Are you breathing right now? <laughs> God doesn't work for me? <laughs> I mean, look down at your chest, see if it's moving. <laughs> Yes, God works for every one of us. And when Adam and Eve made that choice, God could not sustain their lives. They were created mortal, but with the opportunity to be immortal by eating from the tree of life. So God withheld access to the tree of life. They didn't have access to his presence. Now, without his presence, they would have to Face the test of whether they were going to rely on God without being able to see God anymore. They were going to have to rely by faith in believing in His love. So He spoke to them in many ways through revealing Himself to them through prophets, through His Word to patriarchs and to other people. But then when the Israelites were let out of slavery by the mighty power of God, God set up a place on earth where there could be controlled interaction with Him. And they could see that He really wanted to be with them. The sanctuary Adventists have tended to think is all about sin and atonement and judgment and all of those things. That's not the basic function of the sanctuary. The basic function of the sanctuary is where God introduces the sanctuary in Exodus. Exodus 25, verse 8. Now, I'll be citing some verses, and I have my Bible up here, but if I don't look them up, it doesn't mean you don't have to. I've gone over this, and so I'll just quote it, but it's here. Exodus 25, verse 8. God said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell among them. This was the Emmanuel Principle which is God is with us. It's really a sentence in Hebrew. Emmanuel is not just God with us. It's an assertion, God is with us. And that's what God wants at the very end in Revelation 21, uh, to, to dwell with his people for all eternity. And that's why he created us. He wanted an intimate relationship with his children. Why did you want to have children? Well, I needed a child like a duck needs a bicycle. Um, It wasn't until I met my darling daughter that I realized I really needed a baby. Because that way, talk about making friends. (laughs) Um, You have someone who's part of yourself that you can relate to in a special, unique way. And God wanted to have that relationship with his creatures. And we took that opportunity away. But he put here on earth this sanctuary among the midst of, Of these Israelites, these faulty people, so that he could demonstrate what he is really like. And what we're going to do right now is to look at some ways in which God illustrated the plan of salvation through the sanctuary. Okay, so here's the question we're going to look at today What does the sanctuary teach us about the gospel? The gospel, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here, the gospel according to the sanctuary. What does it teach us about righteousness by faith, salvation, and our relation to God? There are gonna be seven points, that's the perfect number, and that's a a good number to have for the gospel. The goal of the gospel is restoration of oneness with God and each other. Make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God shows that he wants to be with his people. Okay, and miraculously, we may get this to to go. There, (laughs) there, that's the one. God wants to be with us, imagine that. In all of our fallen brokenness, with all of our problems, God wants to be with us. That says something about his desire to save us. If someone hurts you, like Adam and Eve hurt God, um, like Joseph's brothers hurt him, what's your reaction? Do you want to go and, and be with them? Do you want to have a relationship with them? Send them an email, a card, whatever. (laughs) Forget it. (laughs) Wipe them off. Erase them from your memory. And yet, what did God do? Joseph waited until he tested the character of his brothers before he said, I forgive you. It's exactly at the point where he revealed himself that he forgave. And it was hard. God revealed himself to Adam and Eve right away. What did that say? That said he wanted to forgive them. If you ever encounter someone, I know you have, maybe you yourself have had this feeling, if, if you think that you or if someone else thinks that they are too bad to save, God couldn't possibly save me, he couldn't want to forgive me, have them take in their hands this book, the Bible. Hold this book, hold up your Bible. The existence, just the existence of this book, without even cracking open the cover, okay, you put it down. Just the existence of this book proves that God wants to forgive because he would not reveal himself to us if he didn't want to forgive. He wants oneness with us. Okay. The sanctuary is God's palace. He was the divine king. A palace has a throne room. That was the Holy of Holies. It had a living room outside where God was enthroned above the cherubim. The next apartment, the so-called holy place, was his living room. He had light, bread, incense. Highborn people or kings had incense in those days to keep out the stench of the surrounding community. You know, they used animals to transport things and so on. But there, that was God's living room, showing that God wanted to dwell with his people. Okay, maybe what we should do is I should just say next because this is, there, all right, I need to go back to that one. Atonement comes from, if you look in the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary, the word atonement means at one atonement which means reintegration or reconciliation, putting back together relationships which are broken. I believe in the Big Bang, now don't, let me stop there. I believe the, in the big bang of sin because when sin occurred and Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God, there was this big bang that blew relationships apart. Now Adam is accusing Eve and Eve is accusing the serpent and they're both unhappy with God and it blew relationships apart. So atonement at one moment is getting these relationships back together into a unity Now, the Hebrew word kiper, which is generally translated atone, is not really referring to the completion of atonement, but rather removing that which is between two parties, namely human beings and God, getting rid of that problem so that then God can forgive. Forgiveness is, in English, would be part of reconciliation, wouldn't it? But in Hebrew, kiper, Um, The word translated atone is more limited. It refers to removing the impediment to the relationship. For example, if I owed my my friend David Sullivan here uh, $10,000, then, you wish that were the case, don't you? Um, (laughs) Then, and and I didn't pay it, and I should have paid it, that could cause a problem in our relationship, see? Now, if I paid back the $10,000, then he could choose at that point whether he wants to forgive me. He still doesn't have to forgive me, but the reason for the problem has been removed. See, that's how it works. And sacrifice accomplishes that removal of the problem, and then God voluntarily forgives. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Maybe if I, ah, if I stretch my arm out, it reaches. <laughs> um, number two thing that we learn about the sanctuary. Uh, that we learn about the gospel from the sanctuary, is the depth of the divide between holy God and faulty humans. Okay. Yes. All right, well, we'll take those two. First of all, restricted access to God's presence. Restricted access to God's presence was necessary because God was the creator, he is the creator, who made the whole universe. Now, I took my daughter last September to uh, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And we went to an IMAX about the Hubble Space Telescope. And it showed pictures taken by this marvelous telescope of Orion, the Orion Nebula. Ellen White talks about Orion, right? And it showed baby constellations just coming out, being formed right there in Orion. Look, folks, God is so big that he is up there, maybe somewhere up around Orion, winging new constellations and galaxies out into the universe like frisbees. That's how big God is. And you know how big those things are? I may not remember exactly, but they said, what you're looking at across the middle of this Orion Nebula where these things are happening, it's it's only 90 million light years across you know, give or take. You know what a light year is? It's the distance that light travels in a year. And light travels how fast? 186,000 miles per second. And we're talking 90 million of those. I can't comprehend the big bigness of God. Now, when God came down and His Shekinah presence dwelt in the camp of Israel, it's like a million nuclear reactors in terms of power. I mean more. A million would be too, not enough. Pulsating with power. right? He had to veil his power. You read all these restrictions. It's not so God is, is nasty, but it's look, I, I just don't want to hurt you. It's like if you have a friend that's a flea. L- let's have certain rules here so that I don't step on you and, and that'll end our friendship. So God has to have these restrictions around so that you have a holy place, and nobody can go in there but the high priest once a year, and he has authorized access. God gives him sort of, in effect, like an asbestos suit, or a lead suit, or whatever. Then the, um, the ordinary priest can go in the outer apartment, but under the high priest in the inner apartment. The lay people have to stay outside. It was restricted access, because of the incredible, intense holiness of God. And of course, this restricted access meant that the people had to um, observe certain rules of purity because God is the God of life and we are mortal subject to death because of sin. And so when people had a physical state that sort of heightened or emphasized this mortality, God said to teach them, you've got to stay away or you've got to wash yourself or you've got to offer a sacrifice so that you don't give a misimpression about God, that he has anything to do with death. Because they'd come out of Egypt, remember? The Israelites had come out of Egypt where every tomb is a temple because death is holy. It's okay. So the soul is immortal anyway. And death has always been here. And it's just a transition to the next life. See, that was the Egyptian theology. And God said, no, death is bad. It's evil. It was not always here. I'm opposed to death. And therefore, let's put a gap between me and anything that smacks of death. And that is a wonderful thing for us, that God is not subject to death. Only God has immortality, 1 Timothy 6.16. He has immortality, life unborrowed and underived, and that's the only reason we have hope that he can give us eternal life. That was 1 Timothy 6.16. The sanctuary was unlike the palace of a human ruler, because God didn't sit on a seat. The so-called mercy seat wasn't a seat for God to sit. It just means a place of mercy or atonement. And there God was enthroned up in the air above the cherubim. He didn't eat the food on the altar. He smelled the smoke that went up. He's not like, just like a human being. There were various aspects of the sanctuary that showed that he was like humans and he wants to live with us. There was bread on his table that was light, but he doesn't consume that bread. He assigns it to his priest to consume. He only gets the incense. So he is greater than us. We need to always remember that. We invite him into our presence. But we need to have this holy awe and remember how great he is. When he says, if there are two or three gathered together, or 20 or 30, or you know, 200,000, 300,000, doesn't matter. God is in your midst. And we need to remember what that that means. We have the creator presence with us. And that is a very, very awesome thing. All right, let's go on to the next one. Third, divine holiness and life versus human sin resulting in mortality. I just mentioned that God is the God of life as opposed to mortality and sin. Okay, okay. Maybe I'll just ask you to advance them when I say, because this one is not, my arm is not long enough. Okay, let's just, I'll just say next, that's easier, thanks. Okay, so you can just hit the the button to the next one, thanks. You might want to just turn it around, I won't use this, I'll just call for next, thanks. Okay. So, holiness, love, and life come from God. They're all intertwined. God's character is love, isn't it? God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8. And that is His holiness. His holy character is love. We see this in Leviticus 19, verse 2, where God says to the Israelites, be holy as I am holy. How do you do that? Well, He gives a series of laws that regulate and enhance relationships between human beings and Him, and human beings and each other. And in the heart of that chapter, in Leviticus 19, which is at the heart of the book of Leviticus, and the book of Leviticus is the third book of the five books of Moses, so in the heart of the foundation of the whole Bible is the verse that Jesus cited, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, verse 18. So how do you love love each other? That tells you how you are holy as God is holy because that's the part of his character that he shares with us. Love is not just something to make us feel good on Valentine's Day, to give us warm fuzzies. Love is the only principle on the basis of which intelligent beings with free choice can coexist harmoniously without destroying each other. You get that? Love is the only principle on the basis of which intelligent beings with free choice can get along without destroying each other. If you ever doubt that, just look at the news and you'll get a negative example of that. Love is as necessary for the survival of the human race as air, water, and food. Because if you don't have love, you're gonna die with a bullet or some other way, right? So it's the, the law of love that Adam and Eve broke. And that's what God wants, us, wants to bring us back to. That law, law of love is the law of life, and that is God's holy character. Because the same God who gave us life is the God who is holy. All right, the next, please. Thanks. Sin causes mortality, Romans 6.23. We have sinful actions, but we're also in a state of sin, which predisposes us to more sin, And because of that, we have this separation from God. God didn't want to perpetuate rebellion and suffering. So mercifully, he allows people to go to sleep rather than suffering on in misery or oppressing others. Okay, next. Physical ritual impurities express the birth-to-death cycle of mortality. Have you ever wondered what the common denominator is, the rationale or the reason, why Israelites became impure or unclean when they had various things happen to them, like touching a dead body, being under the same roof as a dead body, right? Coming in contact with human bones, um, coming in contact with some carcasses of of certain unclean animals, or um, scaly skin disease, so that um, a person starts to rot from the outside. You know, like Miriam, for example, and Aaron says, don't let her Lord be like a stillborn child that comes from its mother's womb. So it's like death. Once again, we see death is an aspect of this. And then there's genital flows, okay? Menstruation, nocturnal emission, sexual intercourse, childbirth, the flow of blood for six weeks or so after, after childbirth. These things all made people ritually impure. What doesn't make sense to us is the things that to us are dirty, like um, the process of elimination, right? Going to the bathroom. Uh, Things like that. Or a wound of blood from the side. If blood is going to do something, then why not a wound? Notice that these genital flows, they're from the reproductive organs. And the point is, not that new human life is not beautiful. Not that God didn't say... God said in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply, didn't he? But the point is that each new life that comes into the world through these processes is mortal because of sin, because the wages of sin is death. So we celebrate that new baby. We know that that baby is going to die, except for the atoning merits of Christ's sacrifice. So that's the reason. It's because of the, to sum it up, the birth to death cycle of mortality that results from sin. That is the reason for these impurities. And these had to be remedied if they were minor cases of a one-day impurity. They had to be remedied by bathing, waiting until evening. By the way, evening is when Jesus was sacrificed. He died, he died in the evening, right? The time of the evening sacrifice. And there were other, sometimes longer, complexes of sacrifices, which could take a long time if it were more serious impurity. And all of these things were designed to show us that we are mortal, subject to sin, because, subject to death because of sin. And we need Christ not only to forgive us from sins, but to give us eternal life, right? The so-called sin offering, sacrifice, especially illustrated this point because it was used to remedy these impurities. And it remedied not only impurities but also acts of sin. Showing us these two things that the sacrifice of Christ addresses. One is our sinful actions and two, the state of sin in which we're found. We need both, don't we? Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3. Forget not the Lord and all of His benefits who forgives our iniquities, who heals our diseases. Those are the two aspects. That Psalm 103, verses two and three. Forgives iniquities, heals our diseases. Now, these were not just things of physical dirt. They were conceptual categories. You know, this is a whimsical modern example, but I'd have to use it. Cooties. Anybody remember cooties? When I was in fourth grade, I learned about that, uh, in grade school. And um, cooties, anything associated with girls, their combs, their brushes, their, their chairs, anything. See, that's a conceptual category. It's not material, but it's anything feminine, and that, that, that's at the age at which masculinity is very vulnerable. <laughs> and fortunately, cooties sort of disappear with the massive onset of puberty. <laughs> which wipes all that stuff out But in terms of conceptual categories, you see this tells you something about values now people worry about particularly the um, The role of women because women seem to be subject to some pretty major impurities because they're in- engaged in the reproductive process in ways that are Go beyond that of men men could become physically ritually impure too but in Leviticus chapter 12 verses 6 to 8 you have a woman who gives birth to a child, has to offer a so-called sin offering. Did that bother anybody here? Sin offering. Any ladies bothered by that? Any men bothered by that? Yeah, okay, here's the, the answer to that one. The so-called sin offering is better translated purification offering because it purifies either from an act of sin or from one of these physical ritual impurities. It does not mean in this passage that the woman sinned by having a child, okay? God said, be fruitful and multiply, and we're blessed. But it just meant that this blood flow that she had as a result of the birth um, was signifying, was just reminding us, yes, let's rejoice in this new baby, but this is a new mortal, a situation here. That's all. Notice that in this passage, there's nothing about the woman receiving forgiveness. She doesn't need any forgiveness. All she needs is ritual purification. Now, this ritual purification is something that we don't need to observe today. We don't have to have deacons and deaconesses standing at the doors of our churches asking very personal questions like, huh, what time of the month is it? Or what were you doing last night? Okay, before we have the communion service, because when Christ came and he died, then he took the focus of his ministry to heaven, and now we don't have any holy location on earth where the Shekinah presence is dwelling. Yes, he spiritually comes to be with us, but his physical presence is not manifested in that way on earth. Praise the Lord, we don't have to fight a jihad over a piece of real estate. Huh? Now, according to the book of Hebrews, our focus is on Christ by faith in Heaven, and we have direct access to the throne of grace. Our prayers go ballistic right there instead of having to pray like Solomon did. He says in 1 Kings chapter 8, Lord, when your people pray toward this place, then here in Heaven above. The prayers go to the altar and they go up with a smoke. No more. Our prayers go directly to Him. As a result, we don't have the need for these things. All of us are physically impure, right? You're all impure, ritually impure, as far as the Israelite system is concerned. You doubt? Anybody here been to a funeral? Have you been sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer? How many here have been sprinkled? Okay, you get my point. So we're all impure, and that doesn't matter anymore. But just to drive the point home about this, I've got to tell you about an Adventist farmer. Well, he wasn't always an Adventist, but he was baptized uh, after Bible Bible studies with the pastor, and he was so excited about being baptized that he had the whole church family come to his house for Sabbath lunch, and on the menu was pork. And the pastor was very disturbed and upset, and he came to the man and he said, didn't we talk about clean and unclean meats? And the farmer said, I scrubbed them hogs real good before I slaughtered them. He didn't get it. See, that was hogwash. Oh. Um, <clears throat> that, that wasn't a very kosher piece of humor, I'm sorry. Um, that was, that was, because he didn't get the point. You can't scrub an unclean animal into being a clean animal. Those are conceptual categories, and it's not physical dirt. The point of all of these impurities is that Jesus saves us from our mortality and gives us eternal, not just forgiveness, life. John 3.16 is what that's all about. And we've neglected that idea. We've talked about sins, but we haven't talked so much about life. And I think if we talk more about life, a lot of people would be much more interested in the sanctuary. Okay, let's go to the next one. Thanks. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ is Ephesians two eight, And this is revealed in the sanctuary to an extreme degree. Okay, next slide. Thanks that we have a need for sacrifice and a priest pointing to Christ. We cannot do it on our own. We need somebody to do something for us, outside of ourselves. And I love 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that God, through Christ, reconciled the world unto himself. Meaning, that when Christ died on the cross, it's all over for the kingdom of Satan. He's going to take over planet Earth. Now, if you want to be here, and enjoy that eternal life, you can do so. It's a free gift to be with God. But we need Him to do that and accept that gift which is already there, available for us. Before the cross, it wasn't, was it? And Moses and Elijah were taken to heaven on the basis of money that wasn't yet put in the bank. That's why they looked Christ in the eye and they said, tell us you're going to go ahead with it because if you don't, We're going to have to come down from glory and go and swim in the lake of fire. And that's incentive, right? And so after the cross, however, the money is in the bank. That quadrillion, gazillion dollar check is available for each one of us. Christ is there writing the checks. we got to just say, Lord, I accept the gift. And I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow, but I want to make sure that I get this in today in case anything happens. (laughs) Look folks, all of the agonizing we do in prayer, all of the work that we do, anything we do, is only ever, and I'm not usually this dogmatic, is only ever part of receiving the gift. It never earns any part of it. It's only the way we receive the gift. And when we just receive, then he pours it in. And remember, this is what it was about from the beginning. Are we willing to receive God's gifts in His way rather than trying to listen to some snake oil salesman hanging from a tree saying, you just eat this and you will not surely die. Who are we going to listen to? All right, let's go to the next. We need uh, a sacrifice and a priest. And we also need Christ's sacrifice to accomplish a number of different things. Now, we don't have a lot of time, and so you're gonna have to read about this later, but I'm gonna just give you a little overview. This is a mini-sanctuary course. There were five major kinds of sacrifices. Each of them pointed forward to Christ in a special way. The burnt offering. All of the flesh that could be eaten was consumed On the altar. That's what was unique about that sacrifice. And that illustrated the fact that Christ's life was completely consumed on the cross for us. Second, we have the grain offering. This is Leviticus 2. Burn offering was Leviticus 1. The grain offering was unique in that it has no blood and no flesh, there's no death involved. This points to the fact that we can take Christ, the bread of life, he calls himself in in Leviticus, uh, or rather in John 6, the bread of life. And we can take that bread and we can gain spiritual life from him. And he said at the end of John 6, he said, it's my words that are life, my words. We can take that life into us. Notice that there's no death involved. This is a sacrifice. You can have a sacrifice without death occurring. And Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, be a living sacrifice. We can be living sacrifices consecrated to God for his use if we allow him to come in and use us for his glory. The third one is the well-being offering, the so-called peace offering. And in this case, the unique thing was that the offerer could eat part of the sacrifice. Okay? In the other kinds, the priest could eat his portion. Or in the burnt offering, even the priest wouldn't eat any. But in this one, not only would the priest eat his portion, but the offerer could also eat his portion. Which reminds us, Jesus said, except you eat my flesh. But he went one step further than the sacrifice, he said, and drink my blood. So by eating Christ's flesh spiritually, we take the life of the Creator into us and we gain eternal life. This was not an offering about sin offered in a a situation of needing to confess and repent. They were often offered in situations of praise or rejoicing or just wanting to have a voluntary gift of devotion to God, which tells us, it reminds us, that even our praise to God can only be acceptable to him as it flows through the merits of Christ's sacrifice. They offered sacrifices, pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice when they rejoiced. See? Even our prayers need to go up like incense. They need the mediation of the incense in Revelation to go up before God. Otherwise, they would bounce off the ceiling and get no further than their decibels would reach. And it's all because of Christ. He has no reason to listen to us without Christ. All right, so that was the third one. The fourth one is the so-called sin offering, purification offering, which was Leviticus 4 to Leviticus um, 5, verse 13. And this one is the sacrifice that was used for inadvertent sins, lighter sins. That is, if I didn't realize I sinned, but I I did, and then I realized later what I had done, If I had a more serious sin, I could offer other kinds of sacrifices, like the burnt offering, which was the original sacrifice, or the reparation offering, the one I'll tell you about next. The purification offering or sin offering was used for physical ritual impurities and for these sins, and this is the kind that is used on the Day of Atonement to cleanse the sanctuary. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. This pointed forward to the fact that Christ ransoms our lives through his sacrifice because this sacrifice was unique in that the blood was put on the horns of the altar which were the highest points of the altar. It's the only sacrifice where the blood was not just dashed around the sides, splashed on the sides, but it was actually put on the horns, the highest points to kind of put the flag up on on blood which represents Christ's ransom for us. It emphasized that. All right, it's, it's a life and death matter. The last of the five is the so-called guilt offering. The unique thing about this is that the offerer needed to make restitution, to put things right before bringing that sacrifice to the sanctuary. So it uh, kind of reminds you of Humpty Dumpty. Sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. See, sometimes you break things you can't fix. And when you've hurt somebody, you need to pay that back. You see, if I owe uh, David Sullivan $10,000 like we were talking about, I can't just say, Oh Lord, forgive me, and declare chapter 11 bankruptcy on my obligation to David Sullivan. God doesn't allow that. He says, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, if you come to the altar to offer a gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, go put it right with your brother and then come and offer your altar offering at the altar. Otherwise, God will not even listen to you. See? And so this reparation offering was for cases in which a person committed a sin in which there was a price tag And the offended party could be God, if the person didn't pay their tithe, for example, or it could be another human being, uh, and God says, put that right, and then come to me. And these could be serious cases of sin that were covered by the sacrifice. Now, why do we need Leviticus? Why can't we just have the New Testament? The New Testament gives us the real thing. Why do we need Leviticus to drag us all through these complicated uh, variety? because it's like this. Let me use an illustration. Anyone been to the doctor um, this last year for a checkup? Or any procedure? Okay, good. Uh, I'm glad. I mean, I'm not glad that you had a problem, right? But I'm glad you had a doctor. Uh, When the doctor went to medical school, this is why you trust the doctor, because he knows what he's doing, right? Or she's doing. You trust the doctor, huh? Otherwise, you wouldn't go there. When the doctor was in medical school, is it enough for physicians in training just to have the full working live human body to study? Or even a cadaver? Why do they have all those anatomy and physiology textbooks where it breaks it all down in this really not very attractive detail? Pulls back the tissues of sin of skin, not sin, skin, and, and shows you all the different parts, and it's not so beautiful. Why do they have to do all that? Because the living organism is so marvelously complex as it says in the Bible, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And my father said to me, son, you're more fearfully than wonderfully made <laughs> when I was a scrawny teenager. But anyway, we're marvelously made and we're so complex that you can't look at it and really grasp the full complexity. You have to break it down into parts and then you can appreciate the whole thing. That's the way it is with Christ's sacrifice. So, by, so, so the, really the... The textbook of Christ's sacrifice is back in Leviticus and Numbers that teaches us what we're looking at when we see the real thing. Let's go to the next one. The parts of the sanctuary represented Christ. We see from the New Testament, we don't have to guess, we have the victim is Christ, the priest is Christ, right? He's the water of life, the bread of life incense of his sacrifice goes up to heaven. In fact, the word for making smoke of sacrifices, to burn burnt offerings, is the same is is from the same root as the word for incense. Okay? And that's Christ's sacrifice. We have even Christ is represented as the veil, which the veil that's rent is his flesh, and that's the way we have access to God, through the rending of that veil when he died. That's in Hebrews uh, 13. We have even the law of God in the ark represents God's character. And God is enthroned there. And that character represents him and his his divine character. And who is that? Christ is God. That's his character. Represented there in the ark, the Ten Commandments. And who was the divine presence? Whose goings forth are from of old? Micah 5 verse 2. Christ Christ. Christ was the Shekinah presence right there in his sanctuary. Christ is all through the sanctuary. It's incredible. Now that doesn't mean that you see many sanctuary seminars, I've I've gone to hear some of them in years past, and they focus on all the details of the architectural structure. The hooks, the pins, the colors. The hooks and the pins were really important to hold the thing up so it wouldn't fall down on the priest. But there is not meaning in everything, in every detail. Some had practical significance. And it's not enough to make these loose connections like some people do. Well, there were four pillars in the sanctuary, so that must represent the three angels' messages plus the loud cry, all right? That's speculation. I mean, there are also four faces on Mount Rushmore, so does that have to do with that as well? Okay? Let's stay with the Bible, but the Bible makes it clear and explicit in the New Testament that the different parts respond, uh, relate to Christ. Let's go to the next one. Number five. We need to accept God's salvation. It's not enough that we have the provision made for us. That provision will do nothing for us unless we accept. Let's go to the next one. We need to accept his provision of sacrifice. The Israelites had to go along after the morning and evening burnt offering were offered on their behalf for all of Israel. They still had to offer their individual sacrifices by which they showed that they individually received God's provision of Christ's sacrifice. So it's not that everything is objective done for you or everything is subjective, it's, it's through you. It's not all legal and it's not all experiential. As some people, in fact, some Adventists have tried to make it. You know, you have the legal only view or you have the moral influence or the experiential view. Where No, it's not. The sacrifice didn't have anything legal Well, wait a minute. Uh, Forgive us our debts. Debt is not legal. My debts are pretty legal, you know. Um, (laughs) Read the fine print. Yeah, sure, it's legal, it's experiential. You have to have both. We need both aspects, and Christ's sacrifice takes care of them. Next, please. Assurance is conditional. When an Israelite had sinned, they weren't immediately put to to the second death. God gave them a chance like he gave King David a chance, a whole, almost a whole year, right? God gave them an opportunity to receive, but that blanket coverage that they received was conditional upon them accepting. The very fact that we're alive today illustrates this principle because when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't blot out the human race, but he gave us another chance. It's like on your computer. You drag a document into the trash. It's not gone immediately. You'd have to empty it from the trash. We're living our whole lives in that dialogue box. Do you really want to empty the trash? We've all taken ourselves to the trash. Do we want to stay there or do we want to get out? Okay, let's go to the next. So assurance is conditional. It's not conditional upon our um, performing anything to gain our salvation, but it's conditional upon receiving the gift. And I love First John 5, verse 12. First John 5, verse 12 is the assurance verse. He that has the Son, you could say she that has the Son, has life, period, has the Son. If you want to boil down salvation, you know, someone asks you on a plane, on a bus, on a train, How do I gain salvation? He that has the son, that's Christ, has life, period. It's as simple as with Noah and the ark. He that has an ark has life. The person that doesn't is gonna go to the bottom, right? it, It just boils down to very, very simple assurance. Obedience, as I said, is accepting God's gift. He provided Noah with instructions for that ark. All of that hard work, that sweat, the toil, with those gigantic trees much bigger and harder than any we have today, all of that was only part of receiving the gift. God gave the Israelites the promised land. With blood, toil, tears, and sweat, they had to go in and take what already belonged to them. And Caleb said, let's go up. It already belongs to us. We are well able to, to take it. And he included God in we, right? We, God in us, can go up and take it. I love what Ellen White says at the beginning of early writings just before she recounts her first vision. She says, I've just tried to, that is in her visions uh, which she's written, I've just tried to bring back a report of the heavenly Canaan for which many would stone me as the Israelites bad stone Caleb and Joshua. But I tell you, brethren and sisters, it is a goodly land and we are well able to go up and possess it. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I believe that. That's why I'm here. Yeah, let's go to the next one. Obedience is accepting God's gift. I'll just mention a word about that and then I'll I'll, I'll say something about this. Uh, Obedience is accepting God's gift. Look, Romans 5, verse 5. Remember this verse. Memorize it. Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If God pours love into our hearts, what is love? The character of God. It's his law, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. All of God's law is based on love, which is his character. And if we have love, we're in harmony with him. How do we have love? How do we have love? We can't whip it up on our own by sitting cross-legged and meditating on our navels by transcendental meditation. We need transcendental medication. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, he pours it in as a free gift. Get up in the morning and say, Lord, I just want your spirit. We'll talk about this more tomorrow. It's transformed my life, this principle. Okay, so that means that obedience is a gift, doesn't it? Because obedience means coming in in harmony with God's love, which is a gift. And this process leading into this next one, is progressive. Now Ellen White said that sanctification, which is growth in holiness, is the work of a lifetime, right? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, he said to the Corinthian believers, referring to the time of their conversion, but you were washed, you were sanctified, that's aorist tense in Greek, which means a point of time, at a point of time, at conversion that is, You were justified, you were washed, you were sanctified. They were already sanctified. How could the apostle Paul dare contradict Ellen White? Well, folks, there's a principle that we need to realize and that's degrees of holiness. And this shows that they were both right. And that is, when we give our hearts to Christ as the thief on the cross did, we belong to him. All holiness comes from him. He is intrinsically holy. All holiness is derived from him because we belong to him now. We are holy. Every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, in fact, is a priest, part of a priesthood, a holy priesthood, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, right? That's in 1 Peter. It's also in Exodus 19, verse 6. So by accepting God, we have this sanctification that starts our Christian walk. Now, the thief on the cross didn't have a very long lifetime in which for his sanctification to grow. But no matter how short or long, for the rest of our lives, we grow just as a tree is not alive unless it's growing. And 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13 is a marvelous passage which explains what sanctification is. Did you ever wonder what sanctification is? It sounds like a big word, right? It's... Abstract. it's theological, pie in the sky, by and by, theologizing. But here is what, what sanctification is. First Thessalonians 3:12 and 13, "And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that, growing in love, He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How do you get ready for the second coming? Sanctification, growth in holiness. What is growth in holiness? Growth in love. That's it. Wow, that makes it really practical, doesn't it? How do we get it? By accepting the Holy Spirit as a gift every day, letting him transform our lives. Our relationships will be different. Everything in our lives is going to be different. We may suffer illness and pain and all the rest, but it's going to be different because God gives us that love as a gift, and it grows. Now, let's go to the next uh, slide there. In the sanctuary, we see this principle demonstrated because the closer you get to God physically, the holier things get, the more expensive and elaborate the materials get. The Holy of Holies, its it's name tells you it's holier. That's where God is enthroned. The um, metal is gold. The fabrics are the most ornate. You move outside and it's still gold, a little bit less ornate into the holy place. You move into the courtyard. The uh, furniture is covered with bronze. The fabrics are not as ornate. In terms of access, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the ordinary priests, into the outer apartment. Lay people only into the court in the wilderness sanctuary. Later on in the time of uh, Solomon's temple, Ezekiel, and Herod's temple, it got more restricted. But access is restricted just like to a nuclear reactor or to the Oval Office, right? The, the people who have the greatest holiness given by God can get closer. The priestly garments are more ornate. The high priest had four more garments than the other priests. You know, he had the ephod the breast the mitre, and, and so on, which the other priests didn't have. So we see the degrees of holiness in relation to God are illustrated physically at the sanctuary. Next slide, please. And we see that this illustrates... Yeah, let's go to the next one. Thanks. Oh. There we go. And, and we see that this d- degree... Of holiness, leading to the next degree of holiness growing is present in Scripture so that as we have a higher level of love, a higher level of holiness, we love a little more today than we did yesterday, a little more tomorrow than we did today. That is this growth in love. And we'll talk tomorrow about love as the power of the latter rain. Okay. And this is not uh, just a feel-good kind of thing. I've dug this out of Scripture by looking through, through the details, it's not just because I'm, I'm naturally a person who gravitates toward that and because it's popular. All right, it's right there in the Word. Next, please. The love of God is the gift through the Holy Spirit, and I already mentioned that, so we'll move on to the next one. And here's our last overall point. Point number seven is uh, God's character of love. This is what it's all about. This is what the controversy was about from the very beginning where Satan questioned God's character. He presented it to Adam and Eve like, you can't trust God that he really wants the best for you. I've got something a little bit better, right? Okay, next please. Love includes justice and mercy. That's something we often don't realize. We think we have love and we have justice. And we think, yes, mercy of course belongs to love, but we don't realize that justice belongs to love. But God is love means that God is fully a God of justice as well as mercy. And that's crucially important. And I'll tell you tomorrow even more why, it's more why it's important as we discuss the sanctuary for God's end time people. We look at the Day of Atonement background to the investigative judgment and what our role is towards God at the end. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And then we'll talk about the timing of the judgment on Sunday morning. Answers to objections regarding 1844. But the fact is, I'll just illustrate it briefly. That is, um, let me mention uh, a story, and that is December 1955. Do you know what happened in Montgomery, Alabama, December 1955, anybody? Rosa Parks, does that name ring a bell? Rosa Parks uh, got on a bus, and she sat where she wasn't supposed to sit. She got taken before the judge, and the judge could have said, all right, this um, apartheid law we have here in America is a just law, but I want to have mercy on you because you look like a harmless enough lady and so I'm just gonna let you go. Is that what Rosa Parks wanted? She didn't want mercy, she wanted justice. What's the good of having mercy if you don't have justice? What's the good of having justice if you've broken the law if you don't have mercy? See, so we need both. God's mercy and his justice, and this is of extreme importance for understanding the sacrificial system. In fact, it's basic. Let's go to the next slide. In fact, this is the reason for sacrifice. God could have said to Adam and Eve when they sinned, he could have said, Adam and Eve, you really hurt me. I gave you this dream vacation paradise. I mean, it beats Cancun and Cozumel and all of those vacation places. And it's just amazing. I've given you perfect bodies and each other, everything you could want, you've really hurt me, but I tell you what, let's just forget about it, just don't do it again, and that's it. Could God have done that? Well, he had kicked the uh, angels out of heaven for that kind of thing, right? Condemned them. What's everyone gonna say? That doesn't really fit in with justice, does it? It's not fair, it's not fair. And I learned about fairness at the seminary when I started to teach uh, about 1995 or so. Uh, this happened when um, I gave a quiz to the students, and there were some answers on the back side of the quiz. It was in a sanctuary class, too. <laughs> and some of the students didn't see the back side of the quiz. They just didn't turn it over. They didn't answer those questions, so they got them wrong. So they came and said, could we have mercy, please? We didn't see those, so, so I had mercy. I was trying to bend over backwards, and... Um, Mistake, I'll never do that again. Um, and I just lowered the number of points so that that was the number possible, okay? And then those who came and they did turn it over and they did answer the questions, they said, that's not fair because we did the trouble of marking that and we didn't get credit for it, see? You gotta have justice as well as mercy. Only with God, the stakes are much higher. They're a matter of life and death. And so the reason for sacrifice and the sacrifice of Christ pointed forward to by all these animal sacrifices is to show that God gives full mercy with full justice to be fully the God of love he claims to be because justice and mercy are the two sides of love. Does that make sense? All right, let's go to the final uh, point I think this is. Romans 3.26, So we're gonna pick up with this tomorrow when we talk about sanctuary for the final generation. Romans 3.26 says that because of the sacrifice of Christ, God is just when he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So because of his sacrifice, he is able to maintain his justice when he gives mercy by making just those who were not just through the sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, this is an incredibly important verse for telling us about the character of God. And the question that we're gonna pick up on tomorrow is, if that already happens because of Christ's sacrifice, then why do we need a pre-Advent investigative judgment beginning in 1844 to show that God is just? If God is already just, when he justifies those who believe. Okay, so that's something to think about and lose sleep over tonight until we get the rest of the story the next exciting episode. Now I know that um, the smell of lunch is rising from my watch. And so we need to go and eat. Um, And we can quit right now, or we could take about two minutes for any questions. Is that a bad idea? Is that okay? Can we take just a couple minutes for any quick questions about any aspect of the sanctuary that I can, I'll try to answer very quickly. Yes, please. The reason for sin. there is no reason for sin. That's why sin is ultimately irrational. Okay? you be perfect but you'll be God than any other that be a reason for: Yes, well, uh, and the reason why, why go on for 6,000 years and, and, and more it's still going. Look, let me illustrate it like this. For sin never to arise a second time, but at the same time for God to take intelligent beings with free choice and allow them to retain their free choice, but to have them never sin again. That's a tall order when you think about it, isn't it? Let me put it this way. Um, Do you have a favorite politician? I don't. I don't have any favorite politicians, but... um, Okay, you you can take... um, President of the United States, you could take um, Hillary Clinton, or Sarah Palin, or Newt Gingrich, or, you know, I don't care who you take. How long would it take for that person to get everybody in their town, just their town, where they come from, their hometown, to love them? How long would that take? What would they have to do, what would they have to do for that to happen? What about everybody in their county, state, the rest of the nation What about the rest of the United States, the Western world, the whole world? And we haven't even started to talk about the unfallen worlds. And God is trying to do that? Now the question is, why is it so short? You see? Because it's all about the character of God. So that when it happens that someone comes along and they say, oh boy, don't I have a beautiful voice? You know, singing with uh, Angel Gabriel. I'm not saying that about myself. don't I or, or I'm, i look pretty good you know, I look in that mirror Oh boy and I start to get this feeling of pride and then bingo I say Let's not go there we've been there and we haven't done that and we're never doing it again Right and so God is letting it work out with such incredible overkill massive detail And we wonder why do why does he have to prove that um, That it's never going to happen again yeah next question Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I've seen that. Yeah, incredible. Mm-hmm. And the world global galaxy, which I have a little telescope, I think, is about the farthest point out that they can see. And when they looked into the center of it, it was a silhouette of the cross of Christ's kingdom. Ah. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, amazing. Wow. Gugliano has done a number of DVDs, uh, How Great is Our God, is one that I've seen. And it's wonderful because he, he points out just how big the universe is that God has made. And he's bigger than, the, than all that in terms of power. Thank you. All right. Yes. The word Shekinah is not in the Bible as such. It is in rabbinic writings later after the Bible. But the root, the Hebrew root from which the word Shekinah comes... Is there right in Exodus 25 verse 8 from the get go, because it says that I may dwell among them? That's that root shakan, the Hebrew word root shakan. So in a sense, you know, the Hebrew root is there in the Bible. the The noun form shakan is not there, but the concept is definitely there. And in fact, um, the Greek translation of that verse in the Septuagint is um, an, a Greek word that means to tabernacle, skenao that shows up in John 1.14, John 1.14. The word became flesh and skenod, tabernacled, shekinahed among us. Christ comes and he is the presence of God with us. Now, so, so now we don't have this tense structure, we have the Lord himself is our tabernacle. And that's just a wonderful concept. Thank you, good question. One more, yeah, okay. You know, I would recommend the Accordance Bible software program, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. And if you just go, you put Accordance with Bible, with no space, Bible.com, AccordanceBible.com. And you go there, um, they have this wonderful software. Uh, it's worth many devotional books. Uh, and you can search, it's what I use all the time. It's like my right arm. It's so user-friendly. Now, that's for Mac. If you want, um, you can use that on, on a Windows, uh, on a PC with a, an emulator, um, or you can use another program like BibleWorks. But I would strongly recommend using a Bible software program, which is so easy to use, so readily available, that you can split the screen. You can have the Hebrew and the, or the Greek here and the English here. You can see what word is what. And you can look things up. They have lexicons. You can look up the words. And it just opens a treasure of all these kinds of things. I, I use it like a surf engine, a search engine. I surf the Bible the way people surf the web. And I use this to, to do that. Okay, maybe one more and then we'll, if there is one more, otherwise everyone is starving, I suppose. Okay, let's call it quits. I'll have a prayer and then we'll go. One, one more? Okay. It is designed for the Mac, yes and um, so however you can use a Mac emulator that will allow you to run that on a PC yes BibleWorks is a Windows based program it's not as user friendly it's not as uh, good in that respect but it does a lot of things you'll have to read the directions pretty carefully I've never used it so I couldn't tell you but I've seen it demonstrated that's BibleWorks all one word Uh, you can just Google that The Mac one is Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. Dot com. com. Accordancebible.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's have a prayer, and then we'll quit and go to lunch, shall we? Father in heaven, we come before your throne. But the way we get there is that our thoughts rise by faith to your heavenly sanctuary. And when we get there, we see that the door is open because Jesus has opened it. We come inside and look around, and it's far more glorious, far higher and wider and longer than we could have imagined. We blink to adjust to the brilliance of the light, which is like the shining of the sun. And the light is coming from way down there at the throne of God himself. We look around the throne, there are four living creatures and 24 elders, and millions of angels ready to do the bidding of the greatest being in the universe who made it all. And our ears are just overwhelmed because Gabriel is leading the heavenly choir practice and they're singing anthems that Bach and Beethoven and Mozart never could have dreamed. We're just Awestruck, taking it all in and then we look down and we see ourselves we realize that we're a people of unclean lips and we live in the midst of a people of unclean lips our shoes aren't even completely polished our lives are imperfect we hang our heads in shame we can't go forward but then we furtively glance up And we see someone looking at us that we recognize. He raises his hands and beckons towards us, and there are scars in those hands. And he looks into our eyes and we look into his. He looks right through us. He knows every molecule of our being, but with complete compassion and understanding. We've got to go forward, those eyes pull us forward those hands. So we do go forward and we walk down that long crystal corridor. It seems to take forever. The angels take a break from their singing and we come down and we lay our meager little token puny gift at the feet of God at his throne. And then we quickly turn to leave. He's the CEO of billions of worlds. We, we can't detain him. He's busy. But as we turn to go, he leans down, he stoops down from his throne, and he says to us, don't go yet, stay and chat a while. Wow, I can't believe that he has time for me. And so we do chat, we commune. I tell him about my family, my work, my church, my joys and struggles and pains and sorrows. I confess my sins my dreams. And he tells me that he forgives my sins. He tells me that he's taking care of my loved ones because he loves them even more than I do. And he tells me his dream, dreams for my life, which are far beyond what I could imagine. After a good long time, I turn to leave and I walk back up that corridor and the angels re- resume their singing more gloriously than before. I look back once more at the glory. And then I go out and I come down to planet Earth. Everything gets colder and darker as I come down. I'd much rather just stay up there. But there's a world to tell about the love of Jesus, to demonstrate his love, to allow the Holy Spirit to use me. And I have strength to go on another day because by faith I have been with God.